The Neuroscience of Intuitive Eating. What is it, and how might it help us gain a healthier relationship with food? Tune in to find out only here on the People Scientist Podcast. Scientist, the podcast dedicated to helping us optimize our health with the latest scientific findings on neuroscience, physiology, and nutrition. I, your host, Dr. Stephanie Caligiuri, a nutritionist, physiologist, and neuroscientist, will be here with you every single week, bringing us information to ignite our thinking to help us be one step closer to the healthiest we can be. Hello, my People Scientist Army, and welcome back to the People Scientist Podcast for episode 125. That's a milestone, 125 episodes. On this podcast, I aim to provide us all with some scientific information so that we can all become a little bit smarter and a little bit healthier with every episode. I aim to give us some unbiased scientific information, and then we can choose to do with that what we will. It's up to us. And I hope that with every episode, we can learn a little bit more about ourselves, about our brain, our body, and therefore feel empowered to make healthier decisions for ourselves and for our loved ones. So how are you doing today? I hope I can add to your day by giving you something to ponder, by, by allowing us the opportunity to learn a little bit more about our body and brain. So what are we talking about today? Well, in the last few years, a certain way of eating has become of keen interest, and it has been coined intuitive eating. Have you heard of this before? Intuitive eating. In today's episode, I'm going to talk about what intuitive eating is, the clinical research on whether this way of eating has health benefits or if it can aid in weight loss, the neuroscience behind it, and how one can eat intuitively, should they so choose to, I'll let you know how to do it. But before we get into the core takeaways, let's start off with a foregone fact where I talk about a scientific finding from long ago. I like to talk about the early days of nutritional science because nutrition is still a fairly young science. It was really only about 100 years ago that we realized vitamins existed, that we needed these nutrients in order to survive and be healthy. Nutrient deficiencies were being mistaken for plagues in the 1930s simply because of a lack of one vitamin, and that was vitamin B3 niacin. So today I want to share with you the interesting foregone finding about a vitamin deficiency that causes night blindness. Can you guess it? That would be a deficiency in vitamin A. And one of the first and most common symptoms of vitamin A deficiency is poor vision in low light, or night blindness. There's evidence that back in 325 BC in Egypt, that liver from oxen was given to people to cure their night blindness. And at the time, even though they didn't know it, but they would be treating a vitamin A deficiency with the highest source of vitamin A in our food supply, and that's liver. The discovery of vitamin A seems to span over about 130 years. 
It was back in 1816 that Francois Magendie realized some factor in the diet was necessary for eye health in dogs, as when he fed a nutritionally inadequate diet to dogs, that they developed ulcers in the eyes. And studies like this would not be conducted today, but sadly they were back in the 1800s. In human beings, night blindness has been experimentally produced by providing men a vitamin A deficient diet. And this would often be done in prison inmates in exchange for an earlier release from their sentence. For example, Jaggers in 1937, Mandelbaum in 1938, Wald in 1938, etc. published studies in which they replicated vitamin A deficiency in men. The scientists would then reverse the condition by giving vitamin A food sources to the participants. For example, 17 men aged between 20 to 31 years old were recruited and were maintained on a low vitamin A diet, which supplied only 150 international units of vitamin A. By 10 days of eating a vitamin A deficient diet, reductions in their night vision were already observed after only 10 days. By 34 days of eating a vitamin A deficient diet, their night vision was far worse, by two logs exactly. So why does a vitamin A deficiency result in vision issues? Retinol, the active form of vitamin A, combines with the protein opsin to form rhodopsin, a molecule necessary for color vision and low light vision. So there you have it. Now we know today that vitamin A is important for our eyesight because of the studies that would seem unethical today that were conducted over 100 years ago. Now let's get into the core takeaways of today's topic on intuitive eating. Intuitive eating is a concept about slowing down, being observant of the sensations in our body, being more mindful of what we feel, this is called interoception, and using that information to make informed decisions. Intuitive eating is associated with healthier body mass index, lower prevalence of eating disorders, better measures of mental health, and better self-esteem and body image. It is thought that some of us may be less aware of our inner sensations, less aware of our feelings of hunger, because of a history of quote-unquote numbing ourselves to our inner sensations over time. For example, because of us perhaps battling with chronic pain, because of us being taught to finish what was on our plate and not listening to our hunger. Perhaps we were taught to be tough and to drive through pain and emotion and to not take the time to feel that. But the good news is that we can indeed retrain ourselves to be more interoceptive, meaning more sensitive or observant to our inner sensations, such as physical hunger, and to use that to our advantage to have a healthier relationship with food. Now I go into the neuroscience on the brain regions involved in interoception and how ideas like bitter taste, sour taste, chewing, and interoception might help us regain a healthier relationship with food. Keep listening on for those scientific details. An adaptive form of eating that has recently gained recognition is intuitive eating. This is defined as a strong connection with and eating in response to our internal physiological hunger and satiety cues. 
Now, this style of eating is supposed to represent adaptive behavior because it represents trust in and a strong connection with our internal physiological needs that pertain to physical hunger, satisfaction, and fullness, and eating in response to these cues. Rather than relying on diet plans, time of day, environmental cues, or emotional reasons for eating. So to eat when we're hungry, not for other reasons. Now those who report to eat intuitively have been described to be less likely to overindulge in food in the absence of hunger, and less likely to allow emotional or situational cues to guide their food intake. So does this style of eating really promote health? Let's find out. Let's get into some of those clinical trials. Bacon in the Journal of the American Dietetic Association in 2005 aimed to determine if intuitive eating could improve the health of women who were classified as obese and chronic dieters that would jump from one diet to another and continually lose weight and regain weight. So how did the scientists go about this? Well, they recruited 78 women that were aged 30 to 45 years old. Every week for six months, the women would meet up. The women were split into two groups, the intuitive eating group or the standard diet weight loss control group. Now, the standard diet weight loss group served as the control, and they would focus upon diet and exercise goals. Participants were taught to moderately restrict their calorie and fat intake and to reinforce their diets by maintaining food diaries, monitoring their weight, and exercising to a moderate heart rate. The intuitive eating group had a more well-rounded approach that focused upon mental health. They taught about accepting and respecting the diversity of body shapes and sizes, and that recognizing that health and well-being includes not just physical aspects, but social, spiritual, occupational, emotional, and intellectual aspects. They promoted eating, eating in a manner that balanced individual nutritional needs, physical hunger, satiety, appetite, and pleasure and they promoted individually appropriate, enjoyable, life-enhancing physical activity, rather than exercise that is focused on a goal of weight loss or calorie reduction, but to incorporate exercises that would make the women feel good about themselves. So the women would meet weekly to discuss these concepts. Then they met once a month for six months as follow-ups, and followed up at the two-year mark to see if there were any lasting improvements or changes. And the scientists then repeatedly measured their body weight, blood pressure, blood lipids, energy expenditure, eating behavior, and psychology, like their self-esteem, symptoms of depression, how they felt about their body image, etc. And they compared this to the typical dieting behavior group that, with this group that had a more intuitive body acceptance approach. So what do you think the scientists noted? Well, the control diet group lost about 5 kilograms, or about 11 pounds, at the 24-week mark, and kept it off at the one-year mark. At the two-year mark, they regained on average about two kilograms, but overall they kept off about three kilograms over a two-year time period. By contrast, the intuitive eating group maintained a stable body weight, and they did not lose weight. So it didn't seem as effective for weight loss. But how about their other measures of health, such as their metabolic health, mental health, and their relationship with food? Well, the intuitive eating group exhibited an improvement in their LDL, or low-density lipoprotein cholesterol, from 3.01 to 2.53. The control diet group also saw an improvement in LDL cholesterol, but less so. 
their improvement was 2.99 to 2.63. Now, LDL cholesterol has the potential to become bad or detrimental because if it becomes oxidized from things like cigarette smoke, air pollution, high sugar, high fat fried food intake, then the LDL cholesterol can turn into foam cells and atherosclerotic plaques, also known as clogged arteries. So the fact that this way of eating decreased LDL cholesterol is seen as a good thing. Now both groups, the control group and the intuitive eating group, both saw improvements in their systolic blood pressure by about 6 millimeters of mercury. But now let's talk about mental health here. And I like this study a lot because they went into many fine details about how the women felt about restraining themselves from food they liked, eating disorders, self-esteem, symptoms of depression, body image, etc. Now, overall, the intuitive eating group saw improvements in many of these categories. The women felt less hunger. They felt more in tune with their feelings. They developed a higher self-esteem, less symptoms of depression less preoccupation with achieving thinness, less symptoms of bulimia and disordered eating. Overall, the women achieved more stability and mental health with the intuitive eating plan. They developed a healthier relationship with food. Whereas the controlled diet group saw less improvement or no improvement at all in these measures. So it is interesting. The typical approach to weight loss with focus on calorie intake and exercise did result in weight loss, but not much of an improvement in mental health, nor did it result in an improvement in their relationship with food. Whereas with the intuitive eating group, they didn't lose weight, they were able to keep a stable weight over two years, but they had significant improvements in their mental health, their self-esteem, their body image, and their relationship with food. So perhaps a combination of the two approaches could be best. How about another study looking at intuitive eating? Denny in the journal Appetite in 2012 analyzed the eating characteristics of 2,287 young men and young women with the average age of 25. Now, Firstly, the scientists noted that more young men tended to eat more intuitively than young women. Specifically, 15% more men than women relied on their hunger and satiety cues to guide their eating. They trusted their body to let them know when to eat and when to stop eating. The scientists also noted that this way of eating was associated with a lower body mass index and less tendency for disordered eating. Females who reported that they stop eating when they are full had lower odds of chronic dieting and lower odds of binge eating than those who do not stop eating when full. Now, this could potentially be that if we struggle with being able to listen to our body's cues of fullness, and we tend to overeat, then we may be likely to try to compensate with measures such as exercising, restricting ourselves, purging, or fasting. Therefore, this is part of the reason why intuitive eating seems to be associated with a healthier relationship with food, a more stable relationship with food. Because over time, this cycle of overeating not listening to our fullness or satiety cues and then trying to compensate with these restrictive measures becomes and creates a harmful relationship with food and how individuals might perceive themselves. The scientists also noted that individuals classified as obese were less likely to be able to intuitively eat, that they trusted their hunger and fullness cues less. 
Specifically, 47.5% of women classified as obese ate intuitively, whereas 75% of women classified as a normal body mass index ate intuitively. I think this speaks to the fact that either some of us are born with or conditioned to not listen to our bodies, to not listen to our hunger and fullness cues. You know, we may be told to eat and finish our plates, despite how we may feel if we're feeling full or not. So this way of eating to finish our plate every time breaks that relationship that we have with listening to our body and trusting our body when we are full. This may potentially lead to a higher chance of obesity and disordered eating, as shown by this study. So it is important in young children to encourage them to eat when they are hungry and to stop when they are full. Even as adults, if we struggle with this, it is possible to regain that relationship, as shown in the previous study, to gain a healthier relationship with our food and our bodies again. So how about we get into that? Let's say we struggle with eating when hungry and stopping when full. Perhaps we eat by the clock. You know, it's noon, it's time for lunch, even though we might not be hungry. Let's say we often eat because we are bored. Let's say we eat everything on our plate until it's finished. Whatever it might be. Herbert in the journal Appetite in 2013 wrote of how our ability to intuitively eat is dependent upon our skill of interoception. Interoception means the perception of what is going on inside our body. Now here's a test to see if we are interoceptive. Have you ever gone to the doctor and they asked you to describe your pain? They always want details, right? Where is the pain exactly? What does it feel like? Is it sharp, dull, pressure, burning, etc.? Have you struggled with this in the past? Or was it easy to explain your pain? If it was easy, then you might be interoceptive. But how about a test that we can all do right now to see how interoceptive we are? One common way to assess interoceptive sensitivity is the heartbeat test. So if we sit quietly for a few minutes, let's try to feel or hear our heartbeat. Now don't take your pulse, just sit quietly, hands in your lap or by your sides. Set a timer for one minute and try your best to count how many times your heart beats. Now after that one minute, set the timer again for a minute, but now this time take your pulse. Take your pulse in your wrist or in your neck, and now count your actual heartbeat or pulse. Compare the two. How close were you? For me, I can say I was a bit off. I thought I could feel about 39 heartbeats in that minute, And then when I took my pulse, it was 57. So I was about 68% accurate. How did you fare by comparison? Now, unfortunately, they don't have a clear set point to say if we are interoceptive or not based on this test. Like, you know, if you're within 10 heartbeats, you're interoceptive or not. Because they determine it based on a population distribution, which is different every time. But what I can say, or what I can share, is that in this article by Ponzo in the journal Frontiers in Psychology, published in 2021, they published a similar study on heart rate sensitivity in a population as a way to assess interoception, and they deemed that only one-third of their population of 30 people was interoceptive, and that across many studies that look at heartbeat sensitivity as an indicator of interoception, that one-third of people being defined as interoceptive seems to be pretty typical. 
So that means two-thirds of us struggle with being able to perceive the sensations in our body. So how might we improve upon that? Well, let's first start by talking about the neuroscience of interoception. Where in our brain do we control interoception? Well, anatomical studies demonstrate that there's a class of afferent fibers that monitor the physiological state of all of our internal organs in our body, and that these converge to interoceptive centers in the insular cortex of the brain. Now, using functional magnetic resonance imaging studies, interoception, or being aware of the sensations in our body, seems to be regulated by brain regions like the insular cortices, the inferior frontal operculum, and the middle frontal gyrus. And it is possible that some individuals have these brain regions recruited more so during tasks of interoception, and that seems to be influenced by a multitude of factors. For example, Delernia in 2016 in the journal Neuroscience and Biobehavioral Reviews wrote how certain individuals may be prone to be less interoceptive. For example, we might be less interoceptive if we have experienced chronic pain, trauma, or been conditioned to override our inner feelings and to be tough and strong. If we live with chronic pain, we might try to ignore our inner sensations, to try to ignore that painful sensation in our body so that we can move on and not let it impact us so significantly. In a way, then, over time, we've learned to not listen to our sensations or emotions and feelings, but to push through and ignore them. This, in the long term, might be harmful because then we're not truly aware of what we are feeling physically and emotionally. We might be ignoring some important signs and symptoms that we need to address. Because if we can address them, then we can be healthier and stronger for it, as opposed to ignoring them. Now, in the context of eating, we might have been taught to eat everything on our plate or to eat according to a clock. So to eat without listening to our own internal sensations of hunger and fullness. When we are eating, can we sense when we are satisfied before being overly full? Do we know what that feels like? Can we describe it? If we struggle with that, we might struggle with the skill of interoception. But that's okay. A lot of us do. In fact, according to these studies, two-thirds of us do. So I'm going to get into the neuroscience of how to make ourselves more interoceptive so that we can eat more intuitively if we want to. Price and Hooven in the journal Frontiers in Psychology in 2018 wrote of interoceptive awareness skills to help with emotion regulation. They called this technique mindful awareness in body-oriented therapy. This technique begins by teaching the clients to identify body sensations. They call this body literacy, the ability to identify and articulate sensory experience. For example, a starting exercise that we could do is to apply pressure to a part of our arm or leg. Take a few moments to think about what that feels like. Can we describe specifically what it feels like? Does the sensation radiate to other parts of our body? Does our heart rate or breathing change in response to this? Another exercise is to ask ourselves where we hold the tension in our body. To sit there, quietly, and feel where that tension might be. Do we hold it in our hands? Are our hands clenched? Do we hold the tension in our shoulders, in our neck, in our thighs? What does that tension feel like? We need to try to be specific. 
Does it feel like burning, knotted, hot, tingling, stiff? Does it feel like cement? How and where is that tension? So how can we relate this exercise of interoceptivity to hunger or food craving? Well, when we feel like we want to eat, the first thing we can do is to sit for a moment and to try to assess our sensations. Do we feel a physical hunger? If we think we do, where are we feeling it? Is it in our stomach? Is it a physical rumbling or aching? Do we feel shaky or like we have low energy? Sometimes some of us might not even be able to sense or feel physical hunger anymore. In fact, it might take several hours of not eating or a short fast just to be able to actually feel real physical hunger again. Sometimes our quote-unquote hunger can be emotional. We can ask ourselves, do we want to eat for emotional reasons? Do we just feel bored? Do we feel stressed? Do we feel sad? Are we carrying any physical tension in part of our body and we're hoping that eating might relieve this? Now, taking this moment to try to be interoceptive might help us to understand what we are actually feeling and if we are actually feeling physical hunger or if we want to eat for emotional reasons. That might help us to, first of all, gain control over our eating behavior. That's the first step. The next step in the development of interoceptive awareness is learning to bring attention to inner body experience. This involves learning to focus attention inside the body. For example, attending to and feeling the sensation and flow of exhaled breath through the body. That can help us to pay attention to what's going on in our body. We can also use intention to feel the softening of areas where we carry our muscular tension. So in that first part where I asked, where do you carry that muscular tension? Now the second step is to try to focus on softening that and releasing the tension there. Just bring attention to your breath and the softening of the, ten- the tension in your muscles. And then bringing attention to a specific area of the internal body, inside the chest, inside the shoulder, in the stomach, in the abdomen. When we begin with these exercises that focus on the movement of breath and intentionally attending to softening in an area of holding tension, this is training us to bring attention to the inside of our body. And the ability to sustain that awareness of the inner body is critical for receiving or noticing or being aware of sensory information. It's also the state of sustained mindful attention that individuals most most commonly experience new awareness or insight about themselves or situation. When we can shift our understanding to ourself and what's happening inside our body, this can help us become more emotionally aware and physically aware of ourself. And that can only promote better health because when we're aware of what's going on in our body, we pay attention to that. Then we can form a plan on how to improve anything that might be wrong. And lastly, another step in how to increase interoception is cognitive reappraisal, which involves reevaluating of a situation or experience so that our response to the situation might be altered. So essentially, we're assessing how our sensations and feelings might change as we progress through time or are in different environments and situations. So for example, let's say you're stressed at work. Again, you can take a moment to reassess all of those same things. 
What am I feeling right now? Where am I holding the tension in my body physically? Let me think about an internal part, my abdomen, inside my chest, my heart rate, my breath going in and out. And how might it be different in this situation of stress versus a situation where I'm not stressed? All of these things about focusing on how we're feeling inside our body is going to help us gain the skill of interoception. Now, Jones in the journal Nutrition Research in 2020 proposed a really interesting concept. Have you heard of neuroeconomics before? Now, traditionally, neuroeconomics focuses on learning and making choices based on reward and pleasurable reinforcing feelings. Like, we choose ice cream because it releases dopamine in our brain reward pathway, and that makes us feel good. We choose coffee because caffeine releases dopamine as well in the brain reward pathway, but it also increases adenosine in the brain to promote wakefulness. So that might, you know, involve some measures of, or some components of neuroeconomics, because we're making these choices to consume these things because of how it impacts our brain, how it releases dopamine, and it makes us a reinforcing behavior. But here in this article, Jones wants to change things up. They propose a new way of looking at reinforcement learning and motivation in order to balance our emotions with our inhibitions. The scientists here in this paper discuss how often our own satiety cues, meaning our feelings of satisfaction and fullness after a meal, should technically inhibit our craving for more food. But many times it doesn't. Like, we might be full and satisfied, but we still crave more food. We see the chocolate and the dessert and the pizza on the table, and even though we're full, we aren't able to inhibit our food cravings, even though the feeling of fullness exists. The scientists provide evidence that eating a high-calorie, high-sugar, high-fat diet seems to impair this natural mechanism of inhibition, meaning that naturally our feelings of fullness should inhibit our food cravings. But if we eat high-sugar, high-fat foods, it seems to override this natural mechanism. Why? Well, it could be because sugar, like drugs of abuse, might hijack our brain reward system. In fact, scientists in my own lab published on this. Our brain reward system exists in order to reinforce things we need to survive by releasing dopamine and saying, yes, this is good. Keep doing this. For example, exercise, socializing with people, sex, eating. We need these things in order to survive or to thrive as a human population. So our brain responds by releasing dopamine, by making us feel pleasure, so that we will do these things again, reinforcing them. But addictive drugs hijack this brain circuit, essentially fooling our brain, making it think that we need this thing to survive by releasing large amounts of dopamine, by reinforcing that action. And it is thought that sugar does this same thing. As such, eating high sugar foods can hijack our brain reward circuit and make it harder for us to listen to our fullness cues and harder for us to stop our food cravings. So how can we override that? Well, as I previously mentioned, trying to increase our interoceptive skills can be helpful. We can become aware of why it is that we want to eat. Is it actual physical hunger? Or is it a craving to suffice our boredom or emotions? If we have the strength to then eat when we feel physical hunger only, then that is wonderful. 
but not all of us can do that. Even if we can stop and say, I want to eat because I'm bored, that might not be enough to stop us from eating because we're bored. So in this paper, the authors talk about a hormone called glucagon-like peptide 1, or GLP-1, as a way to potentially help us gain control of our food cravings. I actually study this hormone in my own personal research too. And GLP-1 happens to act on one of my favorite brain regions, and that is the nucleus of the tractus solitarius. And this, when it acts on this brain region, it can induce the feelings of satiety, satisfaction, and fullness. Even potentially further along the dose-response curve of taking in a drug or food, this brain region can also induce feelings of aversion, meaning that we don't like that feeling. We'd rather avoid. We're going to stop eating because it might make us feel nauseous or unwell. We don't want to anymore. We're avoiding it. So, you know, the cool thing is that we can start using today. We can use this neuroscience, the fact that this brain region tells us to stop eating, that we're satisfied, that we're full and that glucagon-like peptide 1 can activate this brain region, what releases this hormone glucagon-like peptide 1? Bitter compounds, sour compounds, and the action of chewing. Now, I talk about these concepts previously in episode 59 and in episode 81. So if you want to go back and give those a listen, they would be great add-ons to this episode. But it is important that the taste of bitter or the taste of sour is not accompanied with something reinforcing like sweetness. So for example, a strong, bitter black coffee with no sweetener. Cruciferous vegetables like cabbage, kale, broccoli, Brussels sprouts, arugula, limonene that is found in lemon peels. Those are bitter receptor agonists. They contain bitter receptor agonists that might release glucagon-like peptide 1, to activate the nucleus of the tractus solitarius in order to induce satiety, satisfaction, and feeling of fullness. Sour might also be able to do the same thing, again in the absence of sweetness. For example, vinegar. That can be added to water, added on top of a salad or a dish in order to help induce some satiety. The action of chewing can also increase uh, the recruitment of the nucleus of the tractus solitarius to signal satiety and fullness. So for example, we can eat crunchy fruits and vegetables like apples, broccoli, cauliflower, cucumbers, carrots, etc. These again may bring on board that satiety signaling in our brain. So bitter taste, sour taste, and chewing all signal to our brain satiety and satisfaction. So if we try to include these things in our everyday diet, it might help us to gain control of our eating and for our brain and body to help coincide and be able to override that response of food craving for pleasurable reasons. This is also something that I study in the context of drug addiction. So that is a wrap, my people scientist army, the neuroscience of intuitive eating. Now, why might we want to study or adopt intuitive eating? This way of style of eating appears to be associated with a healthier relationship with food, with less disordered eating, and better body image and better mental health measures. It seems to be associated with a healthier body mass index. Now, because this style of eating puts us in touch with our emotions and inner sensation, so that we eat less for our emotions and eat more for our physical hunger. So, let's say we want to try intuitive eating. How can we do so? 
Well, first we would want to increase our skill of interoception so that we might eat intuitively. Now we can increase our skill of interoception by sitting quietly and trying to listen and feel our heartbeat, trying to be aware of it, being aware of our breath, being aware of the sensations in our body, where we hold our muscular tension, and trying to consciously release that muscular tension. These are some techniques to try to enhance our skill of interoception. We can do tasks like pressing on our skin and trying to really feel and describe that sensation. Trying to perceive our physical hunger and knowing what that feels like. Knowing then, therefore, the reasons why we want to eat And when we want to eat, to stop and ask ourselves, what is it that we are feeling? Are we feeling physical hunger? Are we feeling boredom? Are we feeling sadness? Are we feeling anxious? This can help us define why we want to eat and to aim to eat for physical hunger. The other emotions of boredom, anxiety, or sadness can be targeted with other activities instead of eating, like talking to our friends and family, listening to music, going for a walk outside, watching a movie, planning goals and looking forward to something in the future. Now, trying to override that craving response we might be conditioned to because of eating high-sugar, high-fat foods that are so common in our food supply, we might be able to help override that food craving response with this interoceptive thinking. We can also help by bringing on board our fullness and satiety signaling within our brain by use of bitter taste, sour taste, and the action of chewing. So choosing meals like big bowls of salads, apples, crunchy vegetables, and bitter and sour tasting things without sweetness might aid in our satiety signaling and getting our control over our hunger and eating cues. So I hope that this topic was interesting and informative for all of you. I know I found it really interesting. I think the concept of Interoception in itself is really helpful for promoting emotional awareness, physical awareness, and then once we can become aware of what we are feeling, gives us a target for self-improvement, which is so essential. And I think a lot of time in our life, we've been taught to not listen to the sensations in our body, but the good news is that we can retrain ourselves in order to listen to what's going on, going on in our body and we can make healthful decisions based on that new skill and that new knowledge. So I hope that you all have a wonderful week. Thank you for hanging out with me on episode 125. Make sure to follow me on social media where I post some of the papers that I cite in each episode. And if you want to buy me a coffee to say thank you for the episode, you can do so via the links in the description box to the show. I hope you all have an awesome week and I look forward to meeting you back here in two weeks time on the People Scientist Podcast. Bye for now. I am a scientist simply sharing scientific evidence. Some of the clinical interventions I discuss are not appropriate for everyone. Before making any changes to your diet or lifestyle, please do consult the advice of your physician or dietitian. My opinions expressed here do not necessarily reflect those of Mount Sinai Hospital and its affiliates.